So good afternoon, Hillary. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. It's a gloomy day. We're going to jump straight to the weather in our little intro spot here. All it's right. a gloomy day in San Diego. I heard it was very windy recently. Is this true? Oh, we have had ridiculous winds lately. <laughs> Some of my friends who live out kind of where your husband is from, out in the Imperial Valley, they said they were having 70 mile an hour gusts out there. Wow. Yeah. And the, there'll be like the sandstorms out there mm-hmm. where it'll just wreck the paint job on your car. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of cool, kind of gloomy. Um, how about Mississippi? How's the You know, the it's, un- it's uneventful. Um, really nice day out. Cool, mild, probably in the high 50s, low 60s. It was very sunny earlier and the dogs were just basking in the sunshine, but it's just a nice day. I mean, you can't really complain when it's 60 something in January, right? I mean, it's just right. kind of mild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of peaceful, though. Even though it's gloomy here today, it's peaceful. And Do you a- feel like just kind of lighter? Well, we're, I think we're going to talk about that once we get into the episode. But I, I, I do think that there's been a little change, atmospheric change. I don't know how much. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking about political violence in U.S. history, which I think is a very interesting and timely topic. Yes. Um, but yeah, and you know, it's obviously we'll connect it to contemporary events and some events in the past. But I think it should be an interesting conversation. And it kind of continues things we've been talking about. Well, what I like about this topic is that it's timely based on events that have happened within recent weeks where we, you know, kind of went through what happened on January 6th with the insurrection at the Capitol. But it's also just a straight important topic, I think, to discuss in United States history. It's not just a political timely thing, but it it's really is like it's a topic in and of itself uh, in our history that I don't think we spend enough time diving into or even covering it all. I mean, I never heard any of this mm-hmm. until I, you know, researched it or was in graduate school. I never heard any of it um, about political violence through any part of my education. So I think to discuss it and to recognize it, to acknowledge that it existed prior to January 6th may, I don't know. I think it may help us understand a little bit of how we got here. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. This is, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation today. Um, hopefully our, our listeners will think so as well. So uh, anyway, let's get started. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So... I wanted to start today by congratulating our 46th president of the United States, Joe Biden. Maybe he's listening, Jeff. Maybe he's listening. Uh, We have over 10,000 listeners. This is very exciting. I shared that figure (laughs) with my husband the other day. He's not amongst um, our listeners, but he was very impressed. Um, I, I would like to congratulate him. I'd also like to congratulate Kamala Harris, our first female vice president, our first vice president who is a person of color. Um, Madam Vice President has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? It does. It, here's the thing. I would say there are three moments of transition of power in the United States that were tenuous. And I think this... I think this is one of those three. I think there was great fear in 1860 with the South's threatening secession at Lincoln's election. I think there was great fear in 1800 um, about what would happen as political parties. Uh, the, the Basically, the single-party system was replaced by a two-party system, whether or not that would be a tra- peaceful transition. And I think 2020, 2021. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that um, the fit through by John Adams to not attend the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson is also similar to what we just witnessed in 2021, wouldn't you say? I I think it's kind of, I mean, Jefferson and Adams hated each other for a long time. Um, The interesting thing, in their old age, there was a reconciliation that took place, though. We've got these great letters that Adams and Jefferson write each other. And they they never doubted the other's intelligence, but they said some pretty spicy things about one another. And at the end of their lives, they kind of made up. Well, the thing to point out, though, too, yes, they made up. And I think that that is interesting that they wrote these letters back and forth, that they have this reconciliation. But the difference, I would say, between what happened in 1800 and what happened just the other day is that there really wasn't a long-standing precedent that was set. Um, you know, Adams leaving town before the inauguration of Jefferson, it, you know, it could have been seen as, well, he should have been there or something, but there really wasn't a huge line of tradition and precedent that had been set for that. Whereas when we're transitioning from the 45th to the 46th president, there was certainly long-standing tradition that the peaceful transfer of power takes place and that the former president welcomes the incoming president. And there's just, it's very ceremonial, but what happened in 1800, there wasn't, it wasn't as shocking. I don't think because we kind of were new at this and weren't sure exactly what protocol was. Well, it's like 1933 Herbert Hoover and FDR. There's no love lost between the two of them. And a lot of that is FDR's fault. Um, Hoover felt that FDR didn't really want any advice from Hoover about anything. Can we add Um, that to my list of reasons I don't like FDR? Well, but here's the thing, though. Hoover is there for the inauguration. Hoover rides in the car with FDR to the inauguration. Now, they don't talk during the entire car ride, which is just hilarious. It's Um, like siblings or something, right? (laughs) It must have been the longest car ride down Pennsylvania Avenue, but... I I think it's there have been strong disagreements between the outgoing president president and the ingoing president prior to this year, but it's never or rarely reached the level this did. And one of the things that happened because of the outgoing president's refusal to concede, refusal to accept the election as fairly conducted and all of these things was this moment of political violence on the 6th of January. And we, you know, we just a couple of weeks ago did a full episode about this and people look at this and they're kind of shocked and they're like, Oh, something like this hasn't really happened since the war of 1812 and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Um, And we decided we wanted to do an episode about political violence. And as I started digging into it, like full on the, the, the data geek went into overdrive because I found these great resources of data and this thing called a peace index and a violence index. And, you know, we can get very theoretical about what political violence is and what it isn't. But I think what slowly dawned on me, much like you indicated in our intro there's a lot of political violence in the United States history. Yeah. And not violence. I mean, the way that I like that you said that to consider how we even define violence. I mean, to me, the violence that takes place in the 18th and the late 18th and 19th centuries, is just outright brawling that's taking place Mm -hmm. in politics, you know, in the house, um, in legislative chambers across the country. Um, where they're actually using weapons to duel one another. They're caning each other. They're stabbing each other. I mean, it's not this lily white atmosphere uh, that we might like to imagine. And, you know, I, if you go back to our episode where we recapped, we, it was on January 7th that we recapped, we were horrified at what happened and in no way to dismiss what happened But I will say the pearl clutching that happened in the aftermath, like this is the most sacred building in the entire world. How dare you? There is a long history of some really nasty stuff happening in that sacred building. Yeah. And so again, not to dismiss what happened in any way, but 
the horror struck, like this has never happened before. It kind of struck me as ignorant as to the history of the things that actually have taken place in that building. And I don't think that those should continue, but to suggest somehow that violence within that space or violence within politics was completely unprecedented. um, It's a mischaracterization. Well, I think it, I think it was partially a, a conscious mischaracterization, but I think it's also an ignorance of our history um, or yeah. a rejection to view the reality of our history. I mean, here's the thing. Um, would somebody who had survived the destruction of Black Tulsa in 1920, I mean, what would their response have been to the capital violence? Do you think? You mean, would they have been so shocked by it? Yeah, would they have been shocked? No, I think that it would have been a, considered kind of a natural progression of events. Yeah. It's like you live that. by the sword, you die by the sword, right? You've you've used political violence to kind of put down black communities. It's not surprising that now you're turning on yourselves. And this and let's make this clear. I mean, the these Congress is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. And the protesters who stormed, the the insurrectionists, the seditionists who stormed the Capitol mm-hmm. on January 6th, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. I will say there were a lot of women there too, though. There were a lot. And that but was, I still- you know, historically speaking, I don't I don't want to say like, oh, yay, progress, feminism. But it was interesting <laughs> how many women actually showed up. There were, right. There were more women than I thought would show up for it. Because traditionally, in a lot of these white supremacy organizations, women are expected to hold a very subservient position. But they're very much a part of these organizations. As I think we've discussed having an episode about the Klan, women are so heavily involved in that. Um, I guess not to get completely off topic, but historically it's men. You're right. It's white Mm -hmm. men who, who kind of perpetuate this violence politically, but then outside political spheres where they... Um, politicians will ramp up um, violence. And I talked about this on our last episode or two episodes ago, I guess, about um, the Wilmington riot in 1898, where politicians just kind of, you know, rallied up all this uh, disdain and and upset, you know, everybody in the town to come forth and um, take over the government of this integrated government in North Carolina at the time. And, it, to me, it was really reflective of what had happened just recently this past month. It's like white politicians get everybody riled up. They get themselves riled up and then they go in and there's violence. And the recent events where now there's a metal detector in Congress, I don't think that that's out of line at all all if you really do look at the history and Nancy Pelosi should, she should be pulling up these incidents. I, we're going to mm-hmm. talk in depth about where it's like, no, people have been hurt in this chamber because of weapons. We are in the 21st century. We're not going to do that. Right. Well, I mean, let's talk about political. Let me give you a, a quick, dirty definition of political violence. So political violence, simply put violence to achieve political goals. And it can be used by different groups. So you have state level violence versus other states. We call that war. Right? So December 7th, 1944 or 1941, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor is political violence, right? It's political violence of the Japanese state versus the United States. Kind of large level yeah, that's like a really large level, broad scale, what we're talking about. Sure. But then you have violence between state actors and non-state actors. And this is where the insurrectionists from January 6th fall in. And this is where you get kind of rebellions and riots and revolutions and counterinsurgencies, electoral violence. Well, then we have violence between elected officials. Right. Which is a little different, right? Because it's violence between non-state actors, kind of, but it falls in a very odd kind of space. But you've, 
you've got that violence between state and non-state actors. Then you've got one-sided violence by the state. Genocide, torture, capital punishment, police brutality, things like this. One-sided violence by non-state actors would be acts of terrorism. Because if it's a state actor, it's not terrorism, it's war. And like I said, this is a very kind of high-level kind of theoretical approach to it. But I think it's useful to start separating different types. And then you've got violence between non-state actors. And this isn't individual violence as much as it is, is things like you could have class conflict or ethnic conflict or religious conflict here. But I think it's useful to kind of break that up to start thinking of where different moments of political violence in the United States history happens. So I would say January 6th is non-state actors versus state actor. Um, you know, though, I think I would complicate it to say that it's it was state actors against state actors where they brought in extra like reinforcements. Um, but I don't. I think the problem with the, ins- the with viewing the insurrectionists as being state level actors is they never have the full force of the state behind them. Well, they're not state level actors. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying state level actors encouraged their insurrection. Oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, so te- right, right. But technically, when we're talking about political violence, and I'm going to talk about a couple of organizations today, international organizations that kind of measure this stuff, they would not. They would say, yeah, that's true, or maybe true, but it's not. It's not kind of how we would define this. But I, the reason I want to do this is I want to go back to 1920 Tulsa. Okay, go. And argue that's an act, that's a moment of political violence where you have an entire black community, a very prosperous black community that's virtually destroyed completely um, by white people. And not to simplify it too much, but it was simply an act of jealousy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it was a very prosperous community and it is, it's an act, well, it's jealousy combined with racism and the ability to do violence without penalty from the state that kind of manifest itself. And then I remember we, we talked about kind of violence in the 19. 20s before in a previous episode, but it's, this is part of that. You know, when a group lynches a black man or when a group destroys a black community, particularly at this time, it's always with the tacit approval or a blind eye turned by local officials or the participation of them. But there's never an attempt by local officials, the state, to stop it. Is that a fair characterization? Okay, so here's where the overlap comes in, though. The state is interested in upholding white supremacy, and it's in, they encourage it. Yes. So in a way, they may not be acting specifically there, but there isn't going to be repercussion for it because it's not seen as a problem. Right. Well, I mean, this is, this is the whole thing of why do people who are storming the Capitol on January 6th take selfies or post to Instagram or whatever while they're doing it because they see no problem with what they're doing. They thought they were going to walk in riot insurrection Go to Olive Garden and eat that night. That's an Anderson mm-hmm. Cooper joke. Stay at the Garden Inn and head home. Right. They didn't think there would be any repercussion for their action because they felt encouraged and emboldened and empowered by the leader of our country at the time. And they leader. felt they were right. That they had right on their side. Um, but, I mean, that's that's the thing is I think this political violence thing, it's always the state sits there and you have to kind of wrestle with what role the states, even if it's not a state level act of political violence, what role the state is either um, either allowing something to happen in, or, as you said, components of the state 
giving kind of either tacit or explicit approval for something to happen. Um, now, here's a kind of a controversial claim I'd like to make. The United States is born out of political violence, and we never escape it. Oh, that's not controversial at all. I totally I think, agree. I don't think it would be for some people. I think it would be for the 1776 report. Yeah. Speaking of which, we will be having an episode devoted towards to uh, dissecting the 1776 report. Do you want um, me to have like a stroke? Yes. Um, on, while we're recording. Stroke on air. Um, uh, we're also, I actually, I'm going to make a link to the PDF available on, on incomplete history, because I think it is an, a document every American needs to read. It is one of the most chilling documents I've ever read. No, I don't think every American needs to read it because I think that it would just reinforce already false ideas that may have been floated from the time that they were little. I mean, I would like to dissect it and talk about it, but my goodness, to dissect what if they, it seems What if every American should read it and also read legitimate historians' responses to it? Yeah. Yeah, gosh, that makes me upset. So we will do an episode <laughs> on that. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that's the thing is, I, I think the United States is born out of an act of political violence. So the act of separating from Great Britain is an act of political violence. Um, and, you know, the revolution through a series of events and coincidences and happy, you know, circumstances breaks the way of the people in the American colonies who wanted to separate. So the United States becomes an independent country, but the political violence doesn't stop there. I mean, go back and listen to our rebellions episode, right? So what, what we need to point out though, is that the reason why the violence never stops is because the United States was never united in a cause. I mean, they were united in a cause briefly to fight off, you know, the British to say, we don't want you taxing us here and stuff like that. It was always such a loose piece. It was always such a loose group of people uh, to come together and like try to make a country out of this, you know, you can't make like a full-blown successful, happy relationship because you both hate the same person. Can mm -hmm. you? You know, I mean, I know that's oversimplifying it, but to the well, idea of a United States is so tenuous. I mean, it's it, it's not a united. Well, cause. there's one state that doesn't want to be part of the United States from the very beginning. Well, a lot of them really didn't. I mean, it but was there's like, one there's one state that really didn't want to be part of it. South Carolina. South Carolina. Yes. Um, but I mean, really don't want to be part of it at all. They're, well, it's hard to convince them. Cause. I mean, it's it's so hard to convince them to sign the Declaration of Independence. They, they just don't really want to be with this because South Carolina's economy is completely dependent on exports across the British Empire. Well, and that's – so – I would say South Carolina was very British and you can still see so many um, traces of that British, oh, the British roots yeah. when you go, yeah, if you're in Charleston or something like that. And even the accent um, has very British undertones to it. But yes, of course they wouldn't want to separate from that power because that was exactly what their economy relied upon. And, you know, the idea of like, okay, let's fight them off and make them go away from us. But then to be saddled by a new federal government right, and a new organization, they're not pumped on that either. And that's not just South Carolina. So many of the colonies who united under this one umbrella cause, they never got along with one another. And I've said this in lots of episodes, but the 1790s was a complete and utter riotous disaster in the government. No well, you have coastal wanted to be friends with each other. So you have inter you have interstate conflict, right? So you have conflict between the states, and every state is just 
arguing with their neighbors and faraway states, but you also have kind of rural urban conflict, something we've never gotten away from in this country. Um, you've got, you know, kind of several cities where people who don't live in those cities really do not agree with anything coming out of them. You also have coastal versus inland conflict. This is really important in things like um, Bacon's Rebellion, or not Bacon's Rebellion, um, Shays' Rebellion, um, this kind of coastal versus interior conflict. Uh, all of these are are kind of carrying on. And as the 18th century ends, you get a growing conflict between people who want to perpetuate slavery versus people who initially thought it would just disappear, but now maybe want to start, particularly when we get into the early 19th century, want to start dismantling slavery on some level. So there are multiple modes, multiple points of conflict in the country. There are multiple modes of conflict. And then there's also this, bringing together of all these people with different interests, right? And putting them all in one chamber and they don't like each other. They have um, competing motivations, different backgrounds, you know, all this, all this difference coming into this one chamber and they fight with each other. And it's not just verbally, they physically get into fights with one another over sometimes really dumb things. Like you insulted my wife, you called her ugly, I'm going to get a cane from the fireplace and smack you over the head with it. I mean, you have all these men, all this testosterone brought together, and they're just so violent with one another in this time period in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And the political violence, it's not just over differences on their interests, but it's like they are unable to get along with one another because they don't want to be there in the first place, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So you would argue political violence is kind of lashing out at something you it, – it's lashing out because you feel maybe your your views on not even want to be part of this haven't been listened to. Yes, maybe, but also just there's no de- – yeah, there's no desire to really to get along because it's seen that nobody's going to walk away happy. And that's the way I think politics is so muddied at the moment is because nobody's walking away happy from the situation, right? And so you're kind of forcing everybody to get together, like, we're going to create this government. And like, there are some people who are pumped on it, but others kind of get um, roped into a situation that they don't want. And it's because their economies become somewhat reliant and dependent on one another, particularly because they're you know, in this foreign land, it's not their land. And we've talked about this before. There are ongoing wars with native people who are being dispossessed of their land. And so people, the start of the United States is basically an alliance of people who look similar, who come from somewhat similar backgrounds to try to come together to quell, um, to, is that a fair word to use, like quell, rebellion or something on the land that they've now taken. And so they have this loose alliance with one another first to fight off Great Britain, but then they have this loose alliance in order to remain in charge of this land that they continue to take more and more and more of. And also to keep the slave population, they keep bringing slaves in. I mean, their their alliance with one another is so loose, but it ends up being based simply upon perhaps national origin, skin color, something along those lines, right? Where it's not, they don't have really strong interest with one another politically. It's just, they have so many common enemies and that's not Mm -hmm. enough to keep the peace at all times. Well, I think they, I think at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century, they have a couple of common points that for most of them, they kind of view themselves as connected on some level. And one of those is uh, this developing idea of whiteness, which isn't fully formulated in much of the 18th century, but eventually kind of crystallizes into something. But it's also their religion. They view they're Protestant. And we've talked about this before as well, is there is Catholics for a long time are not viewed as American. 
because there's a suspicion that they cannot have both loyalty to the United States and loyalty to the Catholic Church or the Pope, right? Yeah, and that's such a good point. But again, it's such a loose it, to me, it's such a loose connection or commonality in which to build an entire government off of. Right. Well, you have descendants of Puritans in New England who have very different ideas of what economic and societal success looks like from people in the Chesapeake versus people in the Carolinas. And then you throw in places like New York, uh, colonies that are out a little bit later, that were multi-ethnic in a way those other colonies weren't initially. You add all this together, and there's just very little in common. And a lot of historians, we argue, it's not till the Civil War in the middle of the 19th century that the United States actually starts to develop something that kind of welds the nation together. Forcibly, after decades of political violence and infighting between states and parties and legislature legislators, right? And... I think it's important to point out, though, just how pervasive violence is during this time period, because oftentimes when there was any sort of dispute, it was settled in violent ways, physical violent, physically violent ways. Mm -hmm. And so dueling was, you know, not out of the question. Um, Being in a physical altercation, hitting somebody over the head, stabbing somebody, it wasn't out of the question. So when you have people who come together and they have all of these major differences, one of the ways that was considered appropriate to settle those differences was to physically fight one another. And so you have these little skirmishes that break out for decades in the lead up to the civil war. And then you finally, I I, thought this sounds terrible, but you have this complete breakout of the entire country settling a dispute with violence because so many of these disputes had been settled violently prior to that. And it, it almost took that in order to finally come to an agreement it, because of the pervasive nature and the because of the allowance of violence on so many levels that it was almost uh, sanctioned. Would, would that be fair to say? Mm-hmm. But this is, I mean, what's interesting is it's a very personal level of violence, right? It's all about the self first. It's about protecting your honor and the honor of your family mm-hmm. first, and then it kind of radiate radiate out radiates out from there. But it's but it's interesting because it's very different than what I would say post Civil War political violence, which becomes much more recognizable to contemporary forms of political violence. You have the rise of the KKK, a terrorist organization. And I want to start giving some data because I, you know, I told you I gathered all this data and now I have to like deploy it. Over the last four years, far-right terrorism in the West, the West broadly defined, um, Western Europe, the United States, uh, 320% increase. Wow. You know, that is so to me, directly correlated with the generation who is died off now, who witnessed the last uptick of such. Yeah. So here's, so here's the thing is there a lot of people, the Institute for economics and peace kind of argues that there is a 50 year cycle of violence that happens in societies, modern societies. And they actually argue this has happened based regularly over the last 200 years. And they argue there's a couple of things that lead to this cycle Um, So they have this idea of positive peace, and it's kind of a political climate and a social and cultural climate that values reconciliation and kind of demonizes violence as a solution. Um, But they say positive peace deteriorates over time, and that there are these things about violence, and they kind of categorize violent activities contagious, that once one group does uses violence to achieve a goal or to try to achieve a goal. Other groups are more likely to resort to violence to do that as well. So it's this ratcheting up. And they argue that this happens in 50-year cycles. And eventually, popular attitudes turn against conflict and move back towards, quote, reconciliation. 
Well, and that's interesting too. I would say though that the violence is ratcheted up when there's a successful campaign for it, right? So if you use violence as, you know, say you're a social movement that has this end goal and you use violence to attain that goal, much like any terrorist organization would do, then yes, it would ratchet up. But when it's, when your violence, your violent acts are thwarted, what is the, where do you go from there? I mean, that, and that's the limbo we're sitting in right now wondering, right? Is it mm-hmm. going to increase or is it going to decrease that? And it, I don't know. What is your, what is your thought well, on that from your data? So, so let's talk about the, the political movement that happened over the summer and it's continuing and I hope it doesn't go away, but the one that for some people on the right is kind of held up as a C it's violent on the left as well. So black lives matter. Um, May 25th, 2020 uh, Minneapolis police arrested George Floyd and, and murdered him or assassinated him or killed him. Depending on your political bent, you'll call it a different word, but he dies. George Floyd dies in police custody as the direct result of one of the officers kneeling on his deck. And this actually kind of sparks this wave of protest. And from May 26th until August 22nd, there were 7,750 demonstrations directly linked to Black Lives Matters held across the United States. Almost 8,000 protests. But they weren't violent for the most part, right? 95% of them were peaceful protests and included no substantive element of violence. 95%. What people get so upset about though is the destruction of property which to me is so deeply tied to our origins in this country where we value property over people but that's less than five thousand or five percent of those demonstrations had any level of violence including property destruction you would say property destruction is violence some people would view it that, but the way this is being defined, they include property destruction and the violence as well. That's a staggering statistic. That, I mean, that's staggering because if you talk to other people, they'd be like, well, that's all they were doing. They were doing was, you know, rioting and burning things. And it's like, no, not really though. It's 5%. Rare. It is, it is the Black Lives Matter gets a solid A for avoiding violence. A 95% out of a hundred is a solid A. That's a solid day. Almost 8,000 protests and fewer than 5% actively engage in any level of violence. And, and the violence, and, though, and the whole thing is- in, anytime there was violence, is it was um, encouraged by police presence. I mean, I watched that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is the thing. It's You've got this huge series, this huge political movement that does not devolve into political violence. And you can contrast that with something like January 6th. So here's my thing. Like, I'm teaching a class on social movements this semester. And I'm going to have, you know, a lecture on Tuesday about what is a social movement and what is, you know, what are the means by which people get together and, and come up with a cause and all this kind of stuff. Is it a social movement if there's violence? Or is it a mob, riot, insurrection, terrorism? You know, because, okay, what sets BLM apart from January 6th? Like, we would use uh, different words to describe so maybe, what so was happening what, depending on what side of the aisle we lean politically. Right. Is that right? So maybe what separates the Black Lives Matter from groups of who subscribe to like QAnon ideas, right? What separates them? I think they're both social movements. One of them actively rejects violence and the other has violence embedded in its very ideology. Well, and the the outcomes or the goals are so very different because the way to reach the goal of, I don't even know what to call the insurrectionists on January 6th. I mean, I guess the Q movement and I hate to even... <laughs> Give them that kind of credit. But not but like, all of them are in that, right? Not well, all of them. What are is it? So, but their goal though was to overturn our government, and that was not going to happen peacefully. 
Well, what they the did- goal of BLM is to stop violence. But right? here's the thing. I don't think they, uh, so I don't think the January 6th protesters, many of them, some of them definitely did. But I think some of them did not view what they were doing as overturning the government. They were convinced that they were simply allowing the true government that was going to stand up against this global conspiracy. They thought they were, they thought they were upholding or uplifting. Exactly. They thought they were upholding that. Right. Uh Where, so here's the thing is I think the difference is this, I think black lives matter at its core identifies ideals society as says it espouses and wants to hold society accountable for doing that and saying you are not doing a good job of assuring safety and security and the pursuit of freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness to a substantial portion of the population. We are not doing a good job of doing that. In fact, we're actually doing the opposite. Not only are you not protecting the rights of certain people in the United States, African-Americans amongst them, the, the ability to pursue happiness, but you're actively working against that bodily in the most harsh way possible, which is physically killing them, right? So you have these acts of political violence, state actors, police, killing black citizens in the United States. And what they're saying is we want to hold society accountable to that. They say this, they need to make sure what they're saying is what they're actually doing. Whereas I think the the seditionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th have a very dim view of, and of what the United States base ideals are. I think they have a very, disturbing view of what it means to be American. And I think for them, it's wrapped up in white supremacy. It's wrapped up in kill them before they kill you. Um, It harkens back to kind of early 20th century rhetoric of race suicide. Um, It's just the worst of everything kind of coming together outside the Capitol building and assaulting this symbol of authority. I mean, is that how do you feel about that? Well, I think for me, when I look at the differences and I look at the movements, is that if we look at, okay, let's look at BLM just isolated. The movement is to stop violence against Black Americans, to say that Black Lives Matter. Okay, who is going to argue with that? Well, you have people coming along saying, Blue lives matter. Number one, nobody's born blue. It's a job, right? Police lives are not in danger. Police officers are not being killed in mass. Um, nobody is threatening the lives of police officers by saying that black lives matter. And by saying we want to protect black people from police, it doesn't mean that black people want to kill the police, right? So For me, when I look at the movements, it's like there's one movement that is very firmly committed to stopping violence. And then there's another movement that's committed to perpetuating violence in order to reach their goals. And and I say that as somebody who watched a police officer getting beat to death with an American flag at the insurrection. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, blue lives stopped mattering when it had to do with wanting to, um, you know, reach their own goals. And so when I look at the two movements, I see one as being, you know, there's one that's just like encouraging violence where they're ha- where people are arming themselves. They're coming prepared to be violent. You don't show up somewhere with a gun, with weapons, with zip ties with the intention of being peaceful. So one, there's like intentional violence and the other it's, you know, it's trying to stop the violence. And so to me, they're, they're both social movements, but I think one uses violence in order to, or wants to use violence or encourages the use of violence to attain their goal. While the other is actively saying, we want the violence to stop, to attain. So I think we would attain our goal if the violence stopped. 
Well, here's the thing. And I think there is political violence that emerges out of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that political violence is the state's response to BLM. So 95% of BLM protests are peaceful. The general rate over decades of police intervention in protests is below 3%. So when you have protests take place, fewer than 3% of them kind of spark a government intervention. 95% of Black Miners protests are completely peaceful. 9%, actually a little more than 9%, closer to 10% of all Black Lives Matter protests sparked direct police intervention. And many times police intervened with tear gas, rubber bullets, pepper sprays, beating with batons at a level which was entirely disproportionate with even a perception of what violence may have been going on out of the protesters. So the social movement and the protest itself is not practicing political violence in order to reach their goal, but the state response to with that movement violence. responds with political violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is the thing. And I think this is what shocked us all maybe January 6th is we did not see a strong state reaction to that assault. We on the saw Capitol. virtually no state reaction to it because maybe a little bit of the opposite where we saw Capitol Police letting protesters in. Participating. But there was no preparedness. And this is, and I think this gets to a broader issue, which is um, there are certain groups that as a culture, we've decided political violence is acceptable to be leveled against. And there are other groups where we've decided it's not acceptable. Well, and we talk about First Amendment rights a lot, right? So one thing I want to say, though, is I don't think that police or state intervention in any sort of, I don't want to see more militarization. I don't want to see more police. I don't want to see more state control over what's going on. But there's a lot of discussion about like, well, this is our first amendment rights. And like, we're allowed to protest. Okay. What about when Colin Kaepernick kneeled? No violence whatsoever. A political protest. Um, just drawing attention to a movement and he can't get hired by any team in the NFL. Whereas somebody who, you know, like Josh Hawley, who's in the Senate, who encouraged the violence, who raises his white fist up in the air, encouraging the protesters on, he gets a book deal canceled. And the next day the options picked up by another publisher The whole idea, you're right, there are certain groups who are allowed to do this, where it's sanctioned, where it's not, uh, there's just no intervention to it. And there are other groups that are responded to incredibly violently. Yeah. And it falls along race lines. That's just plain and simple. Right. Well, I mean, here's the thing is, you know, in the United States today, a white protester with a semi-automatic weapon, a semi-automatic weapon dressed in paramilitary gear does not elicit the same police response as a young black man wearing a hoodie, carrying no apparent weapon. Well, a lot of these people were shaking hands with the police, taking selfies with them. They feel that they have deputized themselves because there's a long history of white people who work alongside police and are somewhat deputized to go out and be vigilante justice. And I think we touched on this during the lynching um, where we talked about lynching and Jim Crow. Um, well, the active citizens oftentimes pair up with the police, with the, with the state forces or, you know, whatever powers that be. And they go out and they think that they can just work right alongside police. And are encouraged. So Rage Against the Machine was correct. They were right a long time ago. It's true. I mean, this that is, song is so true. You can tell what song are you referencing? Just um, oh, what's the name of the song? It's uh, somewhere uh, where bad. Telling is you the well. name of. 
Yeah. Uh, also burn crosses, right? Which means, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. The sheriff, sheriffs across the southern United States, particularly, but let's not let other parts of the United States get off the bat here. I mean, Indiana at one point has the highest participation rate in the Ku Klux Klan of any state in the United States. Uh, lynchings also take place in California. Um, but you would have sheriffs who were active members of organizations like the Klan. And even today you see this where you've got the three percenters, which is a white supremacist group. Uh, you've got police in some jurisdictions who openly wear patches announcing their membership in the three percenters. Yeah, it's it's hugely troublesome. And I think that we're seeing a lot of people who are at the uh, insurrection are being identified as people who work for state government entities, being police forces, fire. Um, There were just a lot of people who were there who were participating in that violent insurrection um, who, you know, are supposed to be upholding the law or that's what they say they're doing is upholding the law. And so what are we to make of that as citizens when we see that? Well, I, I do want to kind of point out a source I think listeners who are interested in learning a little bit more about this should go to. So one of the places, one of the things I look at fairly regularly, there are a couple of places. One is the Southern Poverty Law Center. They do a really good job of catalog, cataloging like violence across the United States, particularly violence via hate groups that kind of talk about these things called hate groups. But another is Militia Watch. Militia Watch is a really great kind of blog that tracks militia movements. And this is the thing. Here are the groups that are present at the June or the January 6th insurrection. Um, Gulf Coast Patriots, Three Percenters, Michigan People's Defense League, the New Mexico Civil Guard, the Patriot Front, Virginia Knights, uh, Yellowstone Militia, the Boogaloos, the Bundy Ranch, the KKK, uh, Proud Boys, amongst others. I mean, it's just it's this list of groups, and their form of political violence surprisingly is not met with a commensurate violent response by the state. And I think this is the frustration out of a lot of observers is the state in other moments of kind of non-state actor versus state actor violence in the United States history has responded pretty forcefully. I mean, we can go back and talk about Vietnam war protests and how the state responds to those. I mean, look at Kent state the Ohio National Guard comes in and shoots students protesting against the Vietnam War. Um, well, where I am right now, you have the National Guard come into Ole Miss during integration. Right. But it's perplexing to us, and I think you brought up an interesting question about does are, if, if political violence runs in 50-year cycles, where are we on the current cycle? Um are we at the beginning of a cycle? Are we in the middle? Are we in the end? But kind of to come full circle to how we what we talked about at the beginning, I, I the optimist in me likes to think maybe we are at the very worst in the middle, if not maybe moving towards the end of a cycle. I hope um, there's a normalcy in the functioning of our government that's suddenly present again, which I really liked. Um, Anthony Fauci spoke yesterday and he said the government's COVID response would be based on facts and that if they didn't know anything, they would not just make things up. They would tell you they don't know. But, you know, these conspiracy theorists and these QAnon folks have not gone away. Their theories have gotten even more outlandish they feel completely downtrodden to think that it's going to go away. I mean, gosh, I think that that's, but I mean, these projects optimistic. 
Right. But these projects that kind of map political violence and kind of its rise and fall say that when society turns and decides it's no longer permissible to believe those things, things happen pretty rapidly. I mean, it's so I think that's the question there. Has it become socially has has being a member of QAnon or these other groups become something that will make people pariahs? And if it has, these projects would argue then we're on the kind of the backside of the political violence cycle. It's, and, I think you're right, but I am concerned by the pervasive nature of this, where I think that there's a large enough percentage of people who believe in these theories and who are just so anti, I don't know, Biden or whatever, that there are enough people that I don't think it's going to just be squashed immediately. I mean, the social media giants and tech companies have done, I don't know if you saw that statistic that came out this week that said since the banning of all these accounts, conspiracy theory nonsense circulating across Twitter decreased by 78%. 78%. That's huge. Just by banning some of these accounts that we don't even know where the information's originating. It's m- much of it is not even within this country. Um, so there's definitely an effort to make this movement one of social pariahs, but there's a lot of people who are involved in it. And I, I think to, it's because of the internet, I think that it's optimistic to assume that it's just going to go away without first trying to reorganize or rebuild and, and revenge, you know, um, I'm a little concerned about that. Well, here's the thing. Okay. So to, to kind of hopefully add a little spark of hope into your life, (laughs) Oklahoma city bombing, 1995, that's 26 years ago. And I would say the Oklahoma city bombing is definitely related to and part of the violence we saw on January 6th. So I was talking about this yesterday with my husband about if we were to, if that insurrection were successful on January 6th and it wasn't a rebellion, it actually was a revolution. We would start talking about how the roots of that by talking about the Oklahoma city bombing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can even go a little bit, further back to Waco and Ruby Ridge, which now you're approaching 30 years of history of this. So I think there's evidence. Is this their last stand, Jeff? Maybe it is. I don't know. But I I would say if there truly are these 50-year cycles, are we now getting hopefully to a point where we decide violence is not the solution ever? And people who advocate violence to foment political change need to be called out for it. Censured or removed from office. Or removed. or And that the ultimate act of non-political violence is the peaceful removal of a despot. Right. Right. Well, I'm seeing hope, you know, this week where things do seem less insane. I mean... I can't tell you what a relief it is to open Twitter and I don't, I don't actively participate in Twitter. I'm kind of a creep, but to open it and not see something just insane trending where you're like, Oh yeah. I'm a political junkie on many levels, but at the same time, I would just like to have days where I don't worry about what is being tweeted about from the white house. Yeah, I saw something this morning that said Biden hasn't been live tweeting Fox and Friends. Does he even know how to be the president? <laughs> it's cracking up. But yeah, but I mean, I, I, sorry. Yeah, to, I, to talk about no, violence, though, I mean, is important just to say that, yes, this is something that we've done historically, that there's been a lot of political violence. And I thought it was really interesting that you pointed out that the origins of this nation are predicated on political violence. But to say that we as a society, we want to root that out. We're not, that's not an okay way to go about business. And we don't want that. Well, and that's the thing is, I think a lot of, not a lot, but some of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, they actually really wondered, can anything you do be legitimate if it's born out of violence? And I think, you know, this is kind of goes back to late enlightenment ideas about 
separating and you know it's violence has been part of the american experience and but it's, it's not, not uniquely american either i mean that's so no it's different. not uniquely american it's not uniquely american but it's it's we ascribe to higher ideals but we always seem to come back to this ultimate decision that violence is the way to achieve things well, and that's what I think kind of circling back to the pearl clutching of pretending this has never happened before. We're the United States. It's a huge denial and ignorance of our history. We do ascribe to higher ideals. We do want to be loftier. We do want to do better. And I'm proud of that for us, that we want to try for that. But time and time again, we return to this incredibly violent uh, means of you know achieving a goal. And it's always predicated on the uh, of upholding white supremacy in this country mm-hmm. that's what's that is what is uniquely american to me is like you know so many of our political systems have just been entirely devoted to this to this upholding of of you know the white regime or the hierarchy right mm-hmm. yeah Well, I think this is a good place to end it. We're at an hour and I think this, I mean, we could go on and on about this topic. Um, But uh, I think it allowed uh, us to like, we were so shook the day after and like we had that episode and I was happy we did it, but we were like, we're still thinking about this. And now to me, it's like, we kind of thought about it for a couple weeks and now we've come back with a little bit more insider context. To me, it's kind of a continuation of that episode, but with a little mm -hmm. bit more a little bit more detail maybe. Yeah. Well, great. Well, um, yeah, this has been interesting. Hopefully you had, uh, you learned a thing or two. Uh, make sure you join us next time. Um, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm.